This is PT Pro Talk, the podcast for physical therapists who want to improve their clinical skills and be more successful. My name is Mariana Parks, physical therapist and your host. Today's episode features my conversation with Dr. Craig Lipson about the first principles of movement. We will cover the four principles, reassurance, reactivation, resilience, and risk management. Dr. Craig explains how to give our patients a positive experience with movement by finding the hardest thing they can do safely and how to be a better sidekick. We will also discuss precision programming and how to measure progress. If this topic sounds interesting, please stay tuned and keep listening. Dr. Craig Lipson, our guest, is a California healthcare leader. Recognized by the National Committee for Quality Assurance for delivering quality back pain care. He is the founder of LA's Parts and Spine and the First Principles of Movement, addressing the global inactivity crisis. A visiting scholar at Professor Stuart McGill's lab, Lipson has studied with renowned figures. He is the first chiropractor on the McKenzie Institute U.S. Board, a past associate professor at Murdoch University, and extensively publishes. He worked with the NBA Los Angeles Clippers and other professional sports teams. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoyed the show. PT Pro Talk is only possible with the support of the forward-looking and innovative companies like Sarah Health. Remote therapeutic monitoring sounds great, but also difficult. Sarah Health makes RTM simple and easy for your patients and providers. Check out sarahealth.com slash ptprotalk for a special offer. Systems for PT. Give your clinic admins and therapists the tools they will need to excel. Give them systems built for therapists with their patients in mind. Systems for physical therapists, the only EMR with a dedicated member's network. Hi, Craig. Welcome to PT Pro Talk. How are you today? I'm wonderful, Mariana. Thank you for the invitation. Awesome. I'm glad we made it work. So let's get started talking a little bit about yourself and your background. Um, my name is Craig Liebenson. I'm a chiropractor in Los Angeles, and I've been in practice since uh, the late 19 or late 1980s. Uh, I don't want to age myself too much. Um, but I uh, love what I do, and I teach around the world. I published a couple of books, and most important thing in the world to me uh, is being in the trenches, not being in an ivory tower. And so I'm uh, seeing clients uh, five days a week when I'm not on the road and spending a lot of time uh, with my wife now that we're empty nesters, uh, but uh, I'm very lucky to have two uh, grown children, uh, 27 and 29, and uh, really just More than anything else, uh, glad to be here with you because uh, we have a worldwide inactivity crisis and um, uh, the way that the mainstream handles uh, pain problems and um, uh, activity-related issues um, is basically broken. And so any chance I have uh, to talk about this, I'm, I'm very um, grateful. So let's, let's talk about it. Uh... So what are those, the, the first principles of movement? Well, the first principles of movement is uh, uh, the name of the courses that I teach with colleagues of mine, Katie Dabrowski in Miami, uh, Dr. Ryan Chow in New York City, and Dr. Donald Moe in San Diego. And uh, there are basically four principles that um, help give us an architecture. And I think it's important that people move away from being a slave of methods and identify that it doesn't matter who your population is, athlete or sedentary, doesn't matter your environment, if you're at a gym or a clinic or virtual, uh, doesn't matter if you see young people or old people. Um, the most important thing is not to be a slave of methods and to have a certain um, tethering to a GPS. And for, for us, um, we've simplified things so that you can apply this from any background with any person. Um, the first principle is reassurance, and that's how we build trust. We want to hear people's story, and we want to be passionate about it so we can know what their goals are and what their concerns and fears and worries are. Um, and so reassurance is the first thing. Um, hurt doesn't necessarily equal harm, 
and activity isn't dangerous. And, and in this way, we're really challenging the status quo. Um, the second principle that builds on top of reassurance is reactivation. And these twin principles really uh, help take us forward uh, towards the third principle, which is resilience. And you recently had Philip Glasgow, a person I admire a lot on your podcast, and he talks about how rehab is training in the presence of injury. And that is how we build resilience so that people can not just spring back, but spring forward, which takes us to our fourth principle, which is risk mitigation. So we know there's not just one way. Um, problems are, are complex. And hearing people's story, reassuring them, uh, teaching them that, that not every hurt equals harm and that the motion is the lotion through reactivation by giving them a positive experience with movement um, helps to begin the process. And then of course, we need to, to do a more robust uh, rehabilitation where we're not managing people away from load. And that, that brings in the resilience. And ultimately, because everybody is different, um, to mitigate risk um, uh, is sort of the path of uncertainty and humility. We can't prevent problems. Problems will come. But we want people to feel uh, that they don't have to give up their activities. And when people feel that hurt equals harm and activity is dangerous, um, they think that they've worn out, that they've hit an expiration date, or their career is over, or that their identity is, is gone. And we want to reverse engineer all that so that people's health span lasts their lifespan. So risk mitigation as our fourth principle really brings it all together so that we can train people for, for life, uh, for being 70, for being 80, for being functional at 90. Very interesting. So talking about reassurance, number one, I just have a few questions about each of those, if you don't mind. Um, Obrigado. <laughs> you, you learned some Portuguese on, your, on your, the courses you're teaching in Brazil? <laughs> well, yes, yes. I had such a wonderful time. The people there had so much passion And uh, we had over a thousand people, um, not far from Sao Paulo. Um, and uh, I just was uh, blown away with the spirit and the energy and the humility uh, and the hunger to, to not um, be stuck in old ways, to uh, reinvent ourselves and to challenge ourselves and to be a learn it all, not a know it all. This, this humility, I thought, was permeating the atmosphere there and it made me feel very very happy that's awesome i'm glad to hear that um okay so reassurance so i imagine it's just a lot of education like all the things that we hear about educating and making sure that the patient is not stuck on those old beliefs of you know the imaging exam now i'm on bone to bone and all that stuff so that's that's pretty much like the education piece? Well, I think that it's, it's, it's nuanced. Um, it, education isn't something we do. In physical therapy, they talk about pain neuroscience education or um, they talk about psychologically informed practice. And, and, and it's become sort of a, a misnomer that you do education or that education is another method. Um, consistent with the idea that we shouldn't be a slave of methods, education is a goal. <laughs> It's not a technique. Uh, and so uh, this takes us to achieving a place where people feel heard and we want them to, to really feel that we're listening with our heart, with our soul, that, that we have passionate curiosity. We want to acknowledge and validate their lived experience. And so um, what happens is when we start to explore movement together. That's when we really get an insight into a person's beliefs. Um, after we've heard their story, uh, we have an idea, but until we start exploring movement together, we can't possibly reassure or co-create a plan. So reassurance has um, some things about it, which on the surface make it sound like it's simple, but then, then it's just a platitude. Um, To really reassure somebody where their behaviors are determined by things that, that you mentioned, beliefs that, that I'm bone on bone, I have a herniated disc, um, I was told uh, to let pain be my guide, um, etc. Um, it's not about education. Uh, 
as Lorimer Mosley, one of the real giants in this field, said that, that the game we're in is the behavior change game. And yes, behavior is based on beliefs, but, but to influence beliefs and behavior, we have to sit by people's sides. We have to become their sidekick. And then we have to observe their patterns when they're exposed to different basic fundamental movements. Uh, and then we see how their fears come forward and what their attitudes are, whether they're a person who is fairly resilient, but thinks that, oh, we should never move wrong. And, oh, one hip is higher than the other. And, oh, my glute isn't firing and my pelvis is twisted. Um, this comes out. It floods into the present. So reassurance and education are things that um, appear as a byproduct of us creating an environment where we can explore things together with the intent to co-create uh, a meaningful plan, to find a safe starting point. And that really uh, is an exciting pivot for me. Uh, I was strongly of the belief that um, education was something you do, <laughs> but, but it doesn't work that way. <laughs> and I think I like when you say that it's kind of like you're matching what the patient is saying. For example, on the assessment, you are talking to the patient, and they are saying something, but then when they are moving, it doesn't translate to exactly what they are saying. So you're kind of like validating what everything that they said and seeing if it translates into like how they move and the way they move. Is that... 100%. Right. I I'm listening first, and then I'm observing. And I want to build trust. That's goal one. I want them to feel heard. I want them to feel validated. Uh, and to build trust, I have to be very mindful that the exposures to movement are perceived as safe. Uh, and so, yes, we're very reassuring. <laughs> but we don't do reassurance. Like, we don't do education. So I love your question. <laughs> yeah, because it is kind of like... We think that is more because you're so used to like talking about education and talking about it. And, you know, it's kind of like bringing it to the practice, like in the in how it works in like the, you know, when they're actually moving. So I like that. Just, bringing it to the practice. It, it, it has to be experiential. My friend and faculty member in New York City, Ryan Chow, he says that behavior doesn't change based on what we say. It's really about the experience that we give people. So we create an environment where people can challenge themselves at the edge of their capability. That leads to adaptations uh, such as psychological resilience and flexibility and also physiological adaptations. If we just manage people away from load and just talk, well, that doesn't prepare them for the um, uh, novelty and randomness and unpredictability of life. We want people to be resilient and anti-fragile. We want them to be durable and to be able to tolerate stress, but we also want them to benefit from stress because stress is like a, an inoculation. So people who are afraid of stress, they're always going to be vulnerable to having um, uh, disabling flare-ups. And flares are normal, but we don't want people to fear a flare. We want people to know that flares will come but that pain will come and pain will go, as another friend of mine, Bronnie Lennox Thompson says, uh, but that they don't have to stop their life. Mm -hmm. It's just different perspectives. Like everybody can have the same problem and how they see and perceive it. It's different. Yeah. And it's our job. It's a responsibility. Um, I think we have to honor the relationship with people that they they that they've come to us we have to to forge that trust uh, because we don't know what's unspoken we don't know what they've been told we don't know what they feel we don't know the ideas that they have in their head about their future they may be predictively processing a negative future based on their past experiences in fact that's the norm that's the expectation and so now to help a person who, who has these fears that have been reinforced by society, by, by family, by, by surgeons, by other physical therapists and coaches, um, and then to help them to reconceptualize, uh, this is, this is a, a, a privilege. And so 
I think honoring that is why I teach um, the boring things. <laughs> I teach the soft skills, like listening skills, like motivational interviewing, uh, like how to how to identify relatable goals, how to co-create a plan, how to be a sidekick like Alfred and, and support people so that they become uh, their own hero in the journey. We want the client to feel like the badass. I don't want them to go, oh my God, that's magic. Your, your hands are incredible or that exercise, you, you fixed my pain. Um, I think that true reassurance in education is empowerment. Yeah, I agree. Makes sense. And, and when you say reactivation, so what do you mean by that exactly? Well, the motion is the lotion. So uh, the body is built to last. It's not built to break. And uh, the secret sauce is via movement. So movement is healthcare, um, as uh, Katie Dabrowski, my other faculty in Miami says. So coaches are honored in our community. Um, when I teach, I have mostly physios and chiros and coaches, and I always have the physios and chiros raise their hand at the beginning of the class, and then I have the coaches stand up. And I ask the physios and chiros to look at the coaches, and I go, I go, they're your teachers this weekend, because there's no confusion on what their role is in all of this. They're going to give movement. They're going to guide movement. They're going to be sidekicks, the the. Uh, the shepherding that they're doing is is to empower people to find a safe on-ramp and then to build resilience through physiological adaptations. And so they have no bias. They're not going to retreat to dry needling or massage or chiropractic adjustments. Um, so truly, uh, the coaches are the ones who who get that movement is medicine, exercise is medicine. So they rely solely on movement as other clinicians, they have their own tools and techniques and things that they tend to go to. Um, and, and I wanted to ask you about the load when you were talking about like getting away from load and all of that. So like, do you feel, I'm going to talk about PTs more now than Kairos, um, because we rehab, we improve pain, we improve mobility, and then we have to get them back stronger again. And I, and I feel like a lot of times we are afraid of loading, right, the, 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 the patient. Um, uh, different, for example, than other people that maybe don't have that bias. So, like, what, what would you say about that, like, loading piece of the rehab? This is, this is such a – this question is just pregnant with meaning – um, Tim Gabbett said, it's not the load that breaks you down, it's the load you're not prepared for. So if we treat people like snowflakes, then we're not preparing them. And it's very easy to feel like you're doing the right thing by being empathetic and being the, the supportive person who's rubbing here and not poking the bear. Um, uh, but if we don't find people's edge, then they are not prepared for uncertain futures and we cannot predict the future. So, you know, if 90 year olds benefit from progressive resistance training, why are we taking 20, 30 and 40 year olds and managing them away from load? Um, so the third principle is about resilience and robustness. And after we've given people a positive experience with movement, which is reactivation, then we want to progress them to the hardest thing they feel safe doing. So always should feel safe. But there has to be a ratio of like uh, challenge to threat. And at first, you know, challenge and threat are very high. But if we take all threat away and also take challenge away, then we're not going to create resilience. So we want to bring challenge up and keep threat down. The role of a great rehab person is that they can increase challenge without increasing threat. They can create a gap there. And that's the opportunity. I want us to reframe the problem. We have to ask different questions. Um, in the clinic or gym, just by having a different environment, by not having a bunch of treatment tables and soft, soothing music going, um, by having older adults lifting kettlebells, you change 
the environment. Now there's no longer the tyranny of the clinic and people's expectations begin to change. And now you, what we create is the opportunity for education. So as Mosley says, education isn't something you do. Education is something that happens. I want to gamify that. <laughs> and, and another thing about that is a lot of times, the, even the patients, like when they go to the clinic, they don't want to move. They don't expect like to work hard. They want to like passive treatment. So I think it's like both, both, yeah, both sides is like, you know, the clinicians that are not maybe loading enough, I would say, or uh, are afraid of loading. And the patients that they are lazy, they don't want to do, you know, they, they're just like, okay, just do the massage here, you know, manual therapy passively. And sometimes it's hard to, I know you've done some, uh, some McKenzie as well. So like in my career, I was a lot of like hands-on manual therapy. And then I slowly start transitioning to more movement and, and education and testing repetitive movements. And my patients did not like at all. Like they were like, why now I have to move? I, you know, I was, it was good before. So I think that's another challenge. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think we all go through that journey and um, it's very easy to fall in the trap of being like the Batman, the fix it person. Um, and everybody's happy. It's what, it's what you and I learned in school. It's what our clients expect from us. Um, doctors have told people to be careful. And so we're really challenging the status quo. And there's so many, so many, um, social components to this. We can never separate the social from the psychological, from the biological. Um, and so people embody, uh, embody their expectations for the interaction. Um, and they embody what they've been told, their beliefs. Um, they embody what, uh, uh, you know, what they read in the sports pages, you know, somebody got stem cells or PRP and, and, and fix their shoulder or their knee. Um, and who doesn't want a quick fix? Yeah. But there's nothing like feeling like a badass. There's nothing like it. And I think this is the swerve from a gray cook FMS type of model where first move well, then move often, which is very uh, nice sounding. And I, I touted it for decades um, uh, to Philip Glasgow's idea that rehab is training in the presence of injury. When we define training, we know there has to be sufficient stimuli to cause adaptation. It has to be RPE of 6 to 8 out of 10. There has to be enough stress to, to reach an edge of a person's capability without taking them past failure. So this requires a high level of a skill. And a physical therapist or chiropractor or osteopath who's very careful about noticing alignment and muscle balance and things like that often sabotages this process unknowingly. Um, and the client is quite happy to be managed away from load. <laughs> um, but we have to prioritize. And if we want people to feel more resilient and want them to be more anti-fragile, um, then then I think as a starting point, we should realize that the body is not so unstable as a lot of our labels and diag diagnoses suggest. Yeah, it's our, a lot of our perceptions and beliefs, I would say. Uh, Ours, the, as the clinician, yes. as the so-called yes. expert. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and I wanted to ask you, so how do you test? What is the hardest thing that someone can do well? How do you go about well, the process? The hardest thing they can safely do, and I, I, I'm always evolving. So I used to say the hardest thing you do well, it's not a lot different than, than first move well, then move often. Um, uh, now I prefer to say the hardest thing a person feels safe doing. So um, uh, the way we test is incrementally. So we identify what their goals are. If they have a hot low back and their goal is to tie their shoes and to be able to put on their socks in the morning without severe acute pain, um, then um, we might uh, try in a seated position flexion, something Peter O'Sullivan shows in cognitive functional training. Uh, we might focus on their breath. Uh, we might uh, identify that they're holding their breath, they're breathing in their shoulders. 
we might get them to breathe more with their lower rib cage horizontally so they're not trapped up here. And lo and behold, they might find that they have a positive experience with movement. A, they tolerate it. And B, if we audit in like a McKenzie way where we do a post-intervention post, uh, uh, assessment, that now their, their flexion is no worse. We haven't poked the bear. Maybe, possibly even, their flexion is even better than it was before. Um, so we want to give them a positive experience with movement. We're always searching. And we link our assessments, our tests, to your question, to their story, their affordances, their action possibilities, the movements that they feel they have activity and tolerances with. So one of our first guidelines ever in 1994 from uh, the Agency for Healthcare Policy and Research, one of the first think tanks, um, they um, said we should focus less on symptoms and more on activity and tolerances related to symptoms. So it's always person-centered, and that's the heart and soul of our, our tests. Uh, and then there's a second arm. There's a second track. We just look at the most basic things. I want to look at how a person's hips move. So one of the most uh, universal ways to look at how hips moves is in jiu-jitsu, the, the shin box or 90-90 position. So uh, we might explore that together, and lo and behold, a person might feel their back pain when their hips are internally rotated on one side. And they might notice that they're like the leaning tower of Pisa. And we can then connect the dots for them to how maybe better hip mobility can help reduce their knee problem, their ankle problem, their back problem. Um, similarly, we can look at simple things like a plank and see if we can get them to feel target tissue like their abdominal wall instead of feeling their back. Um, and that could give them a positive experience with movement. And we can reassure them then <laughs> through reactivation by saying, this is a safe starting point. This is an exposure, which you can do as a movement snack every four to six hours for like 30 seconds. Um, and this will start to build resilience. This will create adaptations, which will buttress you and buffer you against your symptoms and prepare you for an uncertain future. So we look at their pillar, like planks. Uh, we look at glute bridges, very simple, innocent movements that are non-threatening. But even there, if something is painful, we, we mark it and we go, okay, that's going to be a landmark for us. We want to make that less sensitive. So hip mobility, anything that focuses on abs or glutes or hamstrings or calves or lats, um, uh, tippy-toe walk half raises, very simple, mostly body weight things are the initial screens. But then these screens, which are kind of like a warm-up, these movement preps, they bleed into Glasgow's world of training, where we're now also using lighter weights and seeing perhaps what's tough at 10. Again, focusing on finding something that they feel the target tissue. So our assessment is eventually maybe by session two or three, to find things with um, scalable tools like kettlebells and dumbbells where they might find that they can do eight or nine reps, but, but 15 would be too much. And, and it's weakness, it's not pain. So we have this sort of uh, peeling of the onion, if, for lack of a better word. Okay, so let's see if I got it. Uh, so first, the goal is very function-oriented. Function so you are not too worried about pain. You want to see function, what they are not able to do well, or they have uh, problems, restrictions. And then you focus on those activities. Is that correct, the first point? Not 100%, because we are always interested in pain. But we want to shift from exclusively focusing on pain, which leads you to chase your tail, to creating a twin goal of their activity intolerances, not the functions that are important to me, the functions that are important to them. So you, you, you are worried about the pain, but you're not focusing on the pain as the main um, baseline, per se. It is a baseline, but we create a twin goal. People are worried about their pain, so we can't ignore what they're worried about. We're always validating their lived experience. But if we can... Uh, find out what it is that they're afraid of doing because of their pain. 
then we can begin to create a program that is reversed engineered and we find the hardest thing they're safe doing that is connected to their pain. So let's say, as an example, a person has pain in their knee going upstairs. Well, we can find something like a bridge where they feel their hamstrings and their knee is moving, but they're noticing that it doesn't bother their, their knee. We could do a box squat. We notice when they're on two legs that we could even load it. We can make it scalable. We could give them a weight to do. And, and uh, it can even be tiring. Like they can do 10, but they wouldn't feel comfortable doing 15, but it doesn't bother their knee. Maybe it's uncomfortable. It's like zero to three on a pain scale. We call it green. We reassure them. There's reassurance that not every hurt equals harm. But uh, the reassurance is as a result of the experience. And so now we're teaching them that we can get uh, circulation, which is healing. It's anti-inflammatory. The motion is the lotion. uh, That we can create a little callus. We can give them a metaphor. We can explain that you've been blistering because you don't have the capacities. And we found uh, weaknesses. And so now... We're going to build capacities gradually through slow cooking, which sounds very reassuring and safe. (laughs) So all these metaphors are chosen for for purposes. And we watch their eyes. We watch their breathing to see if it makes sense to them. And we ask, um, does this make sense? Are we connecting the dots? We might even do a teach back where we ask them, hey, what would you say to your spouse or a colleague or a friend about what the path is going forward? Can you say in your own words and in... 30 to 60 seconds. And they go, I have to build up slowly my capacities. And in order to to lower my knee pain with climbing stairs, I'm going to do other leg exercises like chair squats with with, uh, a small weight and uh, uh, hamstring and gluteal bridges. So it's kind of like a gradual exposure to exercise and, and, and movement building, strengthening slowly, but always trying to push them in the sense of like, what is the most that they can tolerate without having pain? The most they can tolerate. So we want to increase challenge without increasing threat. It's a ratio. And that's something that's well articulated by a friend of mine, Kathy Sierra. She has a beautiful diagram about that. Yeah. You just, you just, you just nailed education and reassurance. (laughs) (laughs) This is so important. And it it takes us to resilience. And then we have to broaden the the action possibilities, the bandwidth, the affordances, because we can't stay too narrow. We have to widen it out so that we can mitigate risk, the fourth principle. Um, So we have to start to not add hokey things like stand on a BOSU, uh, but we have to, to think about what are the fundamental movements? Are we moving in all three planes? Are we doing sagittal frontal transverse? Are we doing um, frontal plane squats, like a Cossack squat? Are we holding a med ball that is only 10 pounds? And are we moving in a rotary fashion while we come up and down from the chair? Um, There is so much you can do that um, connects the dots for people and creates an envelope of, of preparation for them. And do you use, I read somewhere about like, kind of traffic lights to help guide the movements to know that they are not pushing too hard or they're not going to be like hurting worse the next day. So how do you go about that? Yeah. This, I mentioned, you know, not every hurt equals harm and discomfort is okay. When people have pain or they have persistent pain or acute severe pain, they're naturally very worried. They're fearful. They're apprehensive. So they usually are on guard and hypervigilant for pain. So they might interpret what somebody else would say is a one or a two out of 10 as, as a red light stop. We want to show them a traffic light so that they can see just as a visual that green is like zero to three um, and that's acceptable pain. And, and yellow, where we don't know, it could be like four to seven. We're going to look both ways when there's a yellow light before we cross the street. Um, so we communicate with people. We debrief with them. I encourage people to text me when they're not with me to let me know any questions they have if they've had a flare, um, and if there's anything yellow. And red, people know what red is. You know, red is high pain, seven, eight, nine, ten out of, uh, out of the, on the pain scale. And it's a stop. 
and 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 there's no place for no pain no gain in this model but there's a gap between no pain no gain and and if it hurts don't do it or hurt equals harm uh, there's a big gap and we want to help people develop psychological resilience so that they can increase their tolerance and feel more resilient okay makes sense and then in the do you do you pay attention to like next day symptoms for example they are doing strengthening they are feeling good but the next day they are hurting more like do, do you sure. so 100%. how do you how do you do yeah, deal we, with that we want people to debrief with us so so you know we're listening to people's story we're finding a safe starting point for people we're recommending certain uh, movement snacks that we're co-creating together because it makes sense based on their affordances, their goals, their activity and tolerances. Um, and then we're reassuring people that we are a team and that we want them to debrief with us, good, bad, or ugly, how they're doing. And that occurs in between sessions. So uh, we warn people that flares will come and uh, that uh, – to get the dosage correct, it's not just how they feel during the session, it's how they feel after, including the following day. Like many runners will report when they have a problem that it doesn't bother them at all when they run. They're all warmed up. But the next day, they now have a heel pain. They, they try to walk and they collapse to the floor. They have, they have like a knife in their heel. Well, the same thing can happen with rehab. Sometimes you feel temporarily worse. So we always want to debrief and take that information in so we can tune either the dosage of the exercise or the menu item we chose. We always have things that we can do that are harder, that are progressions, things we can do that are easier, that are regressions. And we have things that we can do that are slightly different, but also train some of the qualities that we need to train. So we call these progressions, regressions, and lateralizations. And in our trainable menu, we have all of this at our disposal. Okay. And now question about rehab. So if you're seeing someone in the clinic and they don't have like a lot of ambitious goals of like running or going back to sport activities, they are more sedentary. So like for those people, when you're thinking about all those principles, do you still want to push them like over what they need per se on their day-to-day -day function? Because when you think about athletes, I think you can, everybody visualizes, we want to make them return to sports. So you're going to push them to do more difficult things. So let's say like a normal patient that is not super active. So how, what are your thoughts on that? This is the normal patient. This is the average. So in a world where we have an inactivity crisis, 80% of people or more, do not meet the physical activity guidelines of the World Health Organization, American College of, of Sports Medicine, or American Heart Association. We know this. So um, uh, the first thing is walking. The, if a person is sedentary, uh, we want them to get out of their chair. Prolonged sitting is the, the, the third guideline. People talk about 150 minutes a week of aerobic and twice a week of strengthening. Uh, but they ignore the third guideline, which is sitting too much or prolonged sitting. So we want to recommend that people get out of their chair every hour or two, and we want to see how many steps a day they're taking. It's very good to get feedback from like a, a, a Apple Watch or some other device. Um, and if they're only taking 3,500 steps a day, we want to explain that it's not wear and tear. It's actually biochemical. It's inflammatory. It's metabolic. They are not burning fat. They're burning sugar. They're glycolytic when they get up from the couch to go uh, to their garage. Um, we need people to burn fat so they don't uh, build up lactic acid and they're not in a pro-inflammatory state. So we explain that things are more metabolic than, than uh, biomechanical and that this is uh, why the motion is the lotion. And so we start with small steps. We start incremental. Uh, if you're doing 3,000 steps and you go to five, that has more health benefit than if somebody goes from five to 15. <laughs> Secondly, we want to find out what their goals are later in life. 
What do they want to do when they're 70, 80, or 90? If they're 40 or 50 and they have some early arthritis in their knee or a meniscus problem in their knee or a disc issue in their back, uh, we want to talk about the future because what we want is we want their lifespan to last their health span. And people are living longer today, but not because they're healthier. It's because of medicine. It's because we have less infant mortality. We have better emergency medicine for heart attacks, but we're actually older, younger. We're obese often. We're diabetic or pre-diabetic. We're sedentary. And so we want to ask people, what do you want to do? What do you see yourself doing when you're 70 or 80? And we can start to reverse engineer uh, improved balance, which is a big issue in people in their 70s. We want to reverse engineer the ability to squat. So the reason why a 90-year-old goes to um, uh, assisted living and loses their functional independence is because why? They can't get up, up off a toilet unassisted. So we want to talk about, um, about their future and their health span more and talk about their reason for coming in, their pain a little bit less. It's a silver lining. So we explain that there's this silver lining of them coming in, that we want them to blow out fewer candles at their next birthday than their last, because their biological age does not equal their chronological age. So these are all part and parcels of the empowerment that we're, that we're searching for, creating an environment for, uh, and trying to co-create with people. Very interesting. Um, and then I was reading about more things on your, on your website, and I thought about precision programming. What is that? Is that a plan that you do? It's the plan for everybody. We always want to individualize our, our self-management. So, um, we know, Dr. Levitt, my mentor in Prague, said, uh, you know, rehab is teaching a person what to do for themselves. So self-management is sort of the standard bearer for uh, evidence-informed musculoskeletal health practice. Um, and that's why we reassure and we reactivate um, and uh, why we guide by the side. And it should always be individualized. It's never going to work if it's a cookie cutter. People want a quick fix. and Clinicians and coaches, they want a cookie cutter, but that's not the real world. Everybody's got different goals. Everybody has a different past. Your biography becomes your biology. So I have to learn about you and then find out what your goals are, what your fears are. And then we want to bridge the gap from what you have to what you need. We do this by building self-efficacy and then a person becomes intrinsically motivated and precision program is the rocket fuel for a person feeling like a badass, feeling like I actually listened to them and I created a program that was for them. Well, I didn't create it. The reason why they feel that way is because we created an environment which was founded on therapeutic alliance and we co-created a program that was meaningful to them. We have to make it meaningful. This is the intent from, from the beginning, from the first second we're together till the last second we're together. Okay. And, and when you're creating those programs, like how do you measure? Like, do you do like rep max or is just by their subjective feeling of fatigue? Like I can't do anymore. Like, I'm, you know, how do you measure that? Well, with strength, strength training, it's easy. That's scalable. So uh, always we're finding out um, the uh, uh, volume and intensity. So that's in reps and, and the weight. Um, uh, with body weight, sometimes it's based on time, like in the tendinopathy literature, uh, the number 45 seconds has been repeated many times in the literature. So we might build up till a person can do 45 seconds of an isometric hold without shaking, uh, and set it as a baseline or a landmark. It's crucial that we have these metrics, these measurements. I'm looking at their cardiovascular metrics, their APOB, uh, their sed rate. Uh, I want to look at their hemoglobin A1C. I want to find out what's going on metabolically in six months, nine months, a year. I want to see those things change. Of course, there are things that are binary. This hurts. Now it doesn't hurt. Or something was an eight out of 10 and now it's a two out of 10. 
Um, uh, there's range of motion things. In the shin box or 9090 from jujitsu, uh, a person may not be able to lift their ankle from the 9090 position. Well, we'll find a position where they can. We'll train the hardest thing they're safe doing. We'll go back to what they couldn't do. It was binary. They couldn't do it. They were unable. Now they can. It's not perfect, but now they can. So we always want to stack wins. That's how you create uh, more intrinsic motivation. It can't be because I say so. It can't be because they think they should. Should and ought has no place in this. It doesn't change behavior. Our job is to give people a positive experience with movement and to challenge them at the edge of their capability by finding the hardest thing they're safe doing. Those two things are the two driving principles <laughs> that take us through this education reassurance journey. Very cool. Um, and before we transition to the final questions, anything else that you want to add about everything we just talked? <laughs> well, I think, I think for coaches and clinicians, they need to, to find a community of open-minded people, of people that are learn-it-alls, not know-it-alls. When somebody is teaching out of a book and they're teaching a system, um, uh, this is usually old news. Usually it's becoming dogma. Um, we have to uh, find people that um, are fellow learners and seekers uh, who want to always better themselves and fail forward. Um, and so, you know, I'm 64. My advice from many years of, of making mistakes is don't get stuck. Don't follow the herd. Um, to avoid being an imposter, to avoid imposter syndrome, which is prevalent, um, uh, to avoid burnout, which is prevalent, um, uh, accept failure. Um, uh, the Zen mindset of 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 finding other people where you feel challenged um, and you feel stimulated. Uh, this is a journey. Keep keep your eyes and ears open. Um, find other people because you're there's a tyranny of the mainstream, and if we don't find a community that can support us as outlaws, uh, then we're going to fall back into what we learn in school and what clients expect. But if you want to become a benchmark, if you want to really create badass clients, you want to empower people so they're badasses at 70, 80, and 90, um, you want to have clients for life, you want them to have trust in you, I think that you have to surround yourself by a community of other people who are extraordinarily and exceptionally humble. Yeah. Any tips where, where we can find this community? <laughs> well, I feel like like the people that 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 I meet all the time are, are people that um, are trying to connect dots, whether it's between the kettlebell world or DNS or McKinsey um, or Animal Flow. I think most of the people that I see they have a big appetite and they want to learn, 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 learn. But it gets very confusing to integrate everything, and that's why I teach principles. So, you know, we've, we've really gotten to that place where we realize that um, to avoid imposter syndrome is to accept failure. And I think the people that are coming to first principles of movement are, are people that I want to go on a hike with. They're people that I want to go out to dinner with. Um, uh, and and they're, they're young coaches. Uh, they're, they're people that are near retirement age. Um, uh, there are their physios, their osteopaths, their their strength athletes. Um, um, so I welcome everybody to to you know join us at First Principles of Movement. I'm going to be in New York and Washington D.C. Katie Dabrowski is going to be in North Carolina. Uh, Ryan Chow is always hosting things in New York City. Donald Mull is going to be in Southern California, and we have groups all over the world. We have we have groups in Seoul, South Korea. Uh, it, throughout Europe and, and the Asia Pacific area, Ryan and I were in Sydney and Melbourne. Um, my courses are available virtually. Um, so there's so many opportunities to connect. Follow Ryan, follow Katie, follow Donald. Um, and uh, we hope to see you in the future. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and if people want to find more information like about the topic, do you have or any resource of information that you recommend people to go to? 
Yeah, I mean, it's such an easy thing in this day and age, but it's also hard. You know, they can just follow uh, myself or my faculty on Instagram. They can go to our website, First Principles of Movement. Um, I'm on Twitter. I'm on the, you know, the other, the other things out there. <laughs> um, we're, you know, everybody's so accessible, but that also is a nightmare. And I think that is why people feel so much imposter syndrome. We face an avalanche of information. There's information overload. Everything is accessible. So how do you connect the dots? How do you become lean and mean? How do you avoid the fear of not keeping up and all the FOMA? And I think that's also why we pivoted to principles. Dr. Levitt, he said before he passed away, um, keep an open mind for new ideas that sometimes show what you thought or believed before was wrong. And, and that is why for me, the resilient mindset, the growth mindset is also uh, one that accepts uncertainty, that isn't a know-it-all. Uh, and is ultimately the most humble. And that also is why when we're with our clients, we're empathetic, we're compassionate, we're listening. We're passionately curious to hear their story. That is not a sexy seminar, but that's what we teach is how to become better listeners, better sidekicks. It's not, it's not our way. It's, it's their way. Very good. Um, Craig, thank you so much for taking the time and come share your knowledge experience with us. Uh, it was very interesting. Um, and I know that you already gave your social media, right? If people want to find you, I think you mentioned, yeah, right? Craig Liebenson. It's, it's okay. easy. If they okay. can spell my name. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so thank you so much. I appreciate your time. And I don't know if you want to say anything else before we finalize. Yes, I want to thank you. I know we've had a hard time scheduling this and you've been very patient with me. Um, I loved your questions. Uh, uh, you kept things on, on track. Uh, and that's, that's a skill. That's a, a hard skill. And you also really, to me, you are speaking for the audience. You are speaking for you know, where people are coming from, where their lived experiences as coaches and clinicians. And I, I recognize that. I appreciate that. So that makes, it, that makes it even more fun for me. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You have a good rest of your day. Okay. Bye-bye. That's all for today's episode of PT Pro Talk. We hope you enjoyed this discussion. Make sure to follow us whenever you listen to your podcast so you can be notified when we release future episodes. You can also join our email list to receive updates and new episodes at ptprotalk.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a rating or review and share with other clinicians who could benefit from this conversation. We are always working to deliver you a better show and would love to hear your thoughts. If you have a moment, please help us by answering a quick survey and let us know what topics and people you'd like to hear, things you like about the show and how we can improve. Thank you all of you who have already responded to the survey. It's very helpful. Also on the show notes, you can find the guest contact information and favorite resources. Links for the survey, our social media, YouTube channel, where you watch the whole episode and our website, where you can find more information about the podcast. Thanks again for listening and until next time.